welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Tuesday Not So Deep Dive episode on Chit Chat Money. This is the show where we go over the basics of an individual stock in 30 to 45 minutes. If you don't know a company, this is the show to get started on your research process. And if you know it well, you probably do not want to listen because we're not going to add anything meaningful. Don't say Uh, that. With that disclosure or intro, uh, we have Ian uh, joining us today. Ian, this might potentially be your last not so deep dive as you graduate to your investment banking. We're covering Hershey. Um, I think, oh, this is, no, this is your choice, right? Although I influenced you a bit. So why, why, why the choice besides me telling you? (laughs) I've always liked a lot of Hershey's snacks. I thought it would be an interesting uh, business to look at now. You got some, you know, got inflation, we've got uh, some kind of uh, lots of macro stuff going on that I thought might be kind of interesting to talk about with Hershey as well. But mostly I just like their chocolates. So, <laughs> all right. Yep. And we're going to get into that. Ryan will introduce all the, the company. They own Hershey, but a lot of other brands as well. But first, we have to talk about our sponsor today, and that is Stream by AlphaSense. This episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that has can be integral to a research process for a professional investor. Um, they have they cover all sorts of industries like telecom, consumers, industrials, real estate, basically everything out there. I'm sure they have stuff on biotech and all that stuff as well. And the way I would describe it is um, because if you're in within that world, you kind of know how it goes. Uh, an expert of a certain industry, say they know digital advertising really well, they'll do a call with another investor. And basically what Stream does is record it and then get the transcript up for, uh, on their service so you can reread through this and it's all anonymized. So it's it's really, really easy to get started on a service. And they provide over 300 expert interviews per week and 70% of their experts are found exclusively on Stream. At the time they gave us their... Uh, notes here. They said they had 8,500 plus call transcripts. I'm sure that's probably pushing over 10,000, probably 12,000 now. So for if you follow big companies, there's going to be plenty of stuff, insights that you can find on there. So you want to go to streamrg.co slash CCM, and you can sign up for a 14-day free trial using the promo code CCM. That's again, stream rg.co slash ccm. If you're interested, the link is going to be in the show notes. All right, Ryan, introduce the Hershey company. Yeah, the Hershey company, their one liner on their 10K says, we are the largest producer of quality chocolate in North America, a leading snack maker in the United States, and a global leader in chocolate and non-chocolate confectionery. I had to look up what confectionery meant, but it is According to Wikipedia, the art of making food items that are rich in sugar and carbohydrates. So, I think listeners, that that sounds about right. Uh, I'm guessing the uh, Hershey breaks its business into three reporting segments. So, and a combined, 
each of the segments accounts in total for a hundred different brand names. So there's a lot of different brands under Hershey's umbrella. Um, but the three different segments are North America confectionery. So that includes brands like Hershey's, Reese's, Kisses, Kit Kats, Jolly Rancher, Almond Joy, Heath, Twizzlers. There's plenty more as well. And then there's North America Salty Snacks. That's the second segment. That includes Skinny Pop, Pirate's Booty, Dots, Homestyle Pretzels, and some others that I didn't recognize. But that's sort of one that they are starting to invest more money into. They're starting trying to build out that segment to kind of be not just confectionery, but also salty snacks. And then they have the third segment is international. So that consists of these international operations of a lot of the same brands, as well as some regional ones to other countries that I didn't really know. So they've got like different uh, popular brands in Mexico. There's one in Brazil. I think there's one in India too, but I, I didn't, I'm not familiar with those, so I didn't name them by name. And then as for the customers, Hershey primarily sells its products to wholesale distributors, chain grocery stores, mass merchandisers, vending companies, pretty much anywhere you can imagine they're trying to get their products in the door. Uh, and there is one company that accounts for 30% of sales. That is the McLean company, but that is just one of the largest wholesalers in the US. So they're just it's not going to any one store, but it's sort of a middleman in that sense. And then when it comes to raw materials, the most significant cost for Hershey is cocoa products. These include cocoa liquor uh, or liqueur, cocoa butter, and cocoa powder. They they buy these all from a third party. So they don't actually take the cocoa beans and turn them into the cocoa powder, cocoa butter. That's the third party, but they buy the products afterwards from the third party. And then they also have a trading company based in Switzerland that is meant to optimize the supply chain and control price risk. So basically they are, um, it's a trading firm that does commodity hedging so that if cocoa prices shot up uh, and uh, Hershey's input costs were to rise, they would get gains off the hedges um, or financing gains essentially. And then the history, this one was fun to look at, actually. I was excited to look through the history. The Hershey Company traces its roots back to Milton S. Hershey in the 1890s. He was actually, he worked at sort of a mentor's candy shop in the 1870s, but he didn't really get started with the Hershey Company until the 1890s. So in 1893, Hershey attended the World's Columbian Exposition, where he got to see German-made chocolate processing machinery for the first time. That inspired him to get into the confectionery business. And a year later, he launched the Lancaster Caramel Company. Do you guys say caramel or caramel? I don't know. I don't really know. <laughs> I'm going to go with remember. caramel. The, uh, so he launched that business and the Hershey Chocolate Company was a subsidiary that sold various sweets. At the time, um, or in 19, it wasn't until 1900, so seven years later, that he sold the Lancaster Caramel Company to a competitor to focus exclusively on chocolate. Uh, that same year, they began selling milk chocolate bars. That's sort of their signature that they still have to today. Um, and that became such a success that they opened a new factory in Derry Township, Pennsylvania, which would eventually become the world's largest chocolate manufacturing plant. And it employed so many people in the community that they renamed the community Hershey. So that's the Hershey, Pennsylvania that you know today was not always Hershey. It's dedicated to the manufacturing plant. Uh, some more history. In 1907, Hershey introduced the chocolate kiss with its signature plume and aluminum foil wrapping. Actually, the, the, the plume wasn't introduced until 1921. They were hand wrapping 
each Hershey, Hershey's Kiss until 1921 when they developed the machinery to do it. The company went public on the New York Stock Exchange in 1927. Yeah, very poor timing on that front because anyone that knows their financial history, about three years later, they were heading into the Great Depression. But they actually continue to sell relatively well from what I can grasp throughout the Depression, which I think is a testament to how durable a business like this is, how addictive the chocolate can be. And they were actually, they aided in the war effort as well. They were selling, it wasn't necessarily like chocolate to the troops, but they were giving like, uh, they, the government used Hershey to develop some foods for the troops at the time. And then since then, it's been a series of new products and acquisitions, a few to name. 1963, they acquired the Reese Candy Company in a stock for stock merger. Uh, 1975, they launched the York Patty. 1977, they acquired Twizzlers. And the last one I'll mention, they acquired Leaf in 1996. That owned 40 different brands, including uh, Jolly Rancher, Payday, Heath, some others. So that would that one sort of was a huge boost to their product portfolio. And I couldn't find any data dating back to 1927 when they first went public, but Hershey over the last 35 years has annualized more than 15% returns on its stock. So this has been a really good performing stock and business and sort of just like an iconic American company. For sure. That's a great overview. And yes, the stock price performance has been phenomenal. I think that's one of the reasons why um, I was interested in looking at the company to identify why the performance has been so good. But I'll hit into industry and competition. The industry is the confectionery market. Well, that's part of it. Um, that's estimated to be at $235.5 billion right now and expected to grow at about 2.4% through 2030. So low growth, but the trend has been, and I think it's really over the, since kind of manufactured food came into play about 100 years ago, it's really been that trend of steady, steady growth more. And this isn't a say on like whether you believe that's good or bad. It's just kind of what it is the like there's just been steady growth in the, these type of products snack foods as a whole is estimated to be around 500 billion dollars a year and that is supposed to hit around 750 billion dollars in 2026 although again these research reports take them with a grain of salt no pun intended um but that really encompasses all of the hershey products including the snack foods uh like ryan mentioned the pretzels and i'm forgetting the other one pirate's booty and smart pop and that's kind of what they're, they're trying to acquire a lot of companies in that space. And they have over the last few years, big competitors include PepsiCo um, and Pepsi is not just Pepsi. They own uh, Frito-Lay as well. And then there's Mars candy, Mondelez, Nestle. Nestle is probably the biggest one internationally, tons of niche players. Ryan, you have something? Yeah. It, there's some interesting history between Mars and Hershey at one point. I, I think it may be different now, but Hershey was partners with Mars in developing the M&Ms. So they used the Hershey chocolate for the M&Ms, but then Mars, so M&M was Marie or Miri and Mars. They were two different people. And Mars, uh, those were the last names. Mars acquired Marie's stake, and now they've become sort of the head-to-head -head competitors in the confectionery business. So they uh, had just a little bit of history there. Yeah, and just to note, 
Yeah, in the U.S., they have a pretty size, outsized market share, but internationally, it's a lot smaller. And I'm sure Ryan will get into that in the earnings, and we'll discuss that later. They're estimated to be the fifth largest candy company in the world. So again, large, um, but not that large. Ian, do you want to hit management and ownership? We had an interesting one here with the long-lasting family trust. Yep. So that's going to be the important thing here. And you know, there's always important things about management and ownership. But the thing to take here is that the Milton Hershey School Trust owns 29% of shares outstanding. And because of a dual class structure, they have about 80% of the voting control. And so if you're buying this, you're, you are buying a, a company that's controlled by basically the, uh, the Hershey family to some extent. It's, it's, this, um, it's in this trust that funds a school that they run. Um, and there's about, uh, like I said, 80% voting control. So they're, they're calling the shots at the end of the day. That's been a fine bet for shareholders over the last 35 years, as, as you guys discussed. And so that, that does provide some confidence that, um, <laughs> that at least that some of the decisions that they've been making have been shareholder friendly traditionally. Um, there has been a little bit of selling from the trust to diversify trust assets outside of just the Hershey company. But that's having a de minimis effect on voting control because they're shell- selling, at least from what I've seen, they've been selling uh, shares that are um, not the high voting shares. Basically, I think they're selling the class A shares. And so um, even though their ownership stakes coming down a little bit, their voting control is remaining high. And that's that's a fairly limited amount that they've been selling. A couple other little couple quick points. Michelle Buck is the CEO, and she has been since 2017. She's actually been at the Hershey Company since 2005, so she spent a large portion of her career there in a variety of roles from, uh, I think, chief growth officer to chief operating officer, um, all sorts of things. And she worked in uh, consumer packaged goods and, and foods like this before um, before starting at Hershey as well. And then one, one final point on this, um, BlackRock and Vanguard each own over 6% of the company. Um, and that's not super relevant, but it just kind of gives you an idea of the type of company that this is, is that this is the type of company that BlackRock and Vanguard have are the second and third largest shareholders. Um, so typically things that are a little bit steadier, um, kind of more kind of uh, blue chip isn't quite the right term, but a little a little steadier business. Yeah. And they're when the, the family has been selling, they've been selling it back to the company and sort of basically a buyback sort of thing, right? Am I not? There have been yeah. some portions of that. So there's like, I think there was a deal in 2018, maybe where they sold about 5 million shares and 4 million went to, uh, I want to say it went to Vanguard or something like that. It went to, I, it wasn't Vanguard, but it went to some investment firm that they sold a block to, and then they sold a million back to uh, the Hershey company. And so they kind of have been doing, it's enough, they have a big enough ownership stake that when they do sell, it tends to be, it's, at least it seems to be um, mostly in these block sales where they'll, where they'll sell some back to the company and they'll sell some to directly to other um, invest institutions. All right, good point. Uh... This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Here you are, miles from home and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning, get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast. Or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com. I'll talk valuation, pretty simple one. Market cap, $43.5 billion, ticker HSY. 
enterprise value is going to be about $48.1 billion because they have a low amount of cash and a decent amount of debt, which I'm sure Ian will hit on later. Uh, so enterprise value probably is, is the correct one to use here. Definitely don't want to discount or not use that debt that they have in their balance sheet. Um, enterprise value to operating income, which is going to be enterprise value divided by trailing 12-month operating income, that is 21.8. And then doing the same metric, but with free cash flow. So taking the enterprise value divided by their trailing 12-month free cash flow is 30. These are on the high end of their all-time valuation metrics. So CPG has been kind of on a, been on a run lately. And with, you know, the market's valuation in general being up high, they're at one of their higher ranges than they typically have been. I think it's typically they've had, uh, I think an EV, well, it was a different metric. I think it was EV to EBITDA was closer to 15 um, normally. So it's a bit elevated, but not too crazy. Uh, 2.5 million dilutive securities outstanding. So these are options, RSUs or whatever, potentially dilutive securities. Um, that could be added to the share count. And that is versus only 206 million total shares outstanding. So not crazy amount of dilution, but they do have that in there. There is some SBC, but typically they've bought back more stock and reduced that share count, although it hasn't been that aggressive. And then they are a dividend payer, pretty healthy, and it's about 1.7%. So that should be factored in, I guess, when you're looking at the returns. Ryan, do you want to hit earnings? Yeah, their first quarter revenue was about $2.7 billion. That was up 16.1%. However, some of that was from an acquisition, which I'll be talking about in a second. But 83% of their revenue comes from that North America confectionery business. So like like we talked about within North America, the Reese's, the Hershey's, all those candy brands. Um, and then so or, organically and on a constant currency, constant currency basis, so excluding the acquisitions and constant currency, revenue was still up 11.5% year over year, so strong growth. And then I want to highlight growth in the salty snack segment because it was really strong. So that that burgeoning segment that they have or that the, they're trying to grow uh, saw strong growth across the board. Skinny Pop sales were up 13.4% year over year. Pirate's Booty was up 55.5% year over year. And then the Dots products, and I don't know if have you guys have ever had those dots pretzels, but there's, there's a whole bunch of different pretzels that they make. We're up 103% year over year. Helped yeah. This by... isn't the gum. This is not the gummy candy, right? That's a, no, 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 no. This yeah. is, they're usually like the ones I've had are like the skinny pretzels. Like it's not in the shape of a pretzel, but it's like a skinny pretzel kind of, it's just like a stick and they're in right. like pretty I got Google. Yeah. Look them up. Yeah. I got Google images here. They're twisted using, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Using so that was their sales have been aided by Hershey's distribution. I, I believe they were saying that they're pretty popular in the West, but they're, they were saying this on the conference call that they have a big sort of West coast presence, but they're, they're starting to build that out on the East coast and using Hershey's distribution to do that. So 103% growth in sales from uh, in that dot segment. And they also reported an operating profit margin of 27% for the quarter. That's growing about on pace. There's kind of the moral of the story for Hershey over time has been um, reducing costs where possible, uh, optimizing supply chain, and the margins have expanded subtly, but gradually over time. And then the shares outstanding has been declining slightly. It's not really enough to like I didn't even do the math because it was barely any, but ideally their cash flow per share should slightly outpace their revenue growth. And 
the uh, the revenue growth has grown at a durable, almost double digit percentage, from what I can tell. Yeah, and that's uh, it was a little bit slower before Michelle Buck took over. If I was trying to look at their long term metrics for this show, I didn't go into the whole deep history because that takes a lot of work. But I think she's really done a good job of um, accelerating revenue growth um, since they took over in 2016 and or 20, since she took over in 2017 and. I think a big part of that is the acquisitions of these salty snack brands. Um, All right, let's move to balance sheet. Ian, what do you got? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yep, they've got um, $338 million in cash. So not a huge cash position, but they're cash flow positive and should be plenty to do what they need to do with. Um, they've got about $3 billion in net PPE, which is property, plant, and equipment. And so they do have... Well, that's just to say that they do have some capital expense and capital expenditures that go on throughout um, the year because they have to, they've got the factories and they have to have all the equipment and all that type of stuff. So it's not like um, this isn't quite a software business that's super capital light and those types of things. They've also got about $4 billion in long-term debt. So they do have a net debt position. Um, this debt is spread out with different notes that have maturities from next year all the way until 2050. And it's spread out fairly evenly across that actually. And almost all of the debt is between two and 4% interest. And so low interest debt on um, just about all of that. Uh, I think there was like a hundred million that was at like 7% or something like that, but a fairly, fairly minimal amount. One helpful ratio that I like to use when I'm looking at a company like this, that has a lot of debt to kind of get a sense of is this risky? Is it not risky? Just kind of get a ballpark idea about that is the EBITDA to interest expense ratio. And so that basically says, okay, what's the money, what's the cash that they're bringing in? And let's divide that by their interest expense to see how many times could they pay their interest with, um, with the cash that's coming in. And so if theoretically their uh, cash coming in was cut in half, would they still be able to pay their debts? You know, you can start to ask those types of questions. Their EBITDA to interest expense ratio is 20 0.5 times, which basically means with their with the EBITDA that they're generating, the the earnings that they're generating, they could pay their interest 20 times, um, and so they've got plenty of money to pay their interest. Is basically the <laughs> the moral of the story. Uh, they seem like they're in pretty good position from a balance sheet standpoint, even though they have debt. Which, when we're looking at a lot of these software businesses, a lot of the software businesses don't have traditional debt like this. But um, for Hershey, they have some debt. It seems like um, they've got plenty of earnings to 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 finance that, and because of some of the capital uh, expenditures that they have to make and the 
the hard assets they have, the debt kind of makes sense to to help finance some of those. And then also if they look to get aggressive with acquisitions, um, they can tap those debt markets too, to they've got some, some room to increase their leverage a little bit if they wanted to. Yeah. That wouldn't, it, it would have just been so beautiful if they had even more debt at these low interest rates and then inflation was, um, st- stuck around at like seven to 9% a year. And they're basically can adjust, like they're one of those companies that have no problems with adjusting to inflation. I mean, that just would have been awesome. And then buying back stock. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is red color, red color, where are you? All blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Um, but we don't need to salivate too much. Let's move to anecdotal evidence. Uh, Ryan added, what is your favorite Hershey brand? So maybe we'll start with you, Ryan, and then we'll move around the table. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much everyone's anecdotal evidence, right, is the how you experienced it as a consumer. And mine, without a doubt, is Reese's. Um, Just the traditional? No. Let's let's, let's even go a layer further. Not the favorite brand, but the favorite product. And there was one that was like... See, like even talking about that, this is one of those companies that's kind of like weaponized nostalgia. There's like that nostalgic factor. Um, The... I used to have, it was, it's almost like it's shaped like a Hershey's bar, but each one was like a Reese's, like each little corner. It was like bigger pieces, but that was kind of my product. That was the one I would always go for. Uh-huh. Ian? Well, I've got a bone to pick with you there because I also like uh, that candy, but I would call it a Reese's. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think, I think just to be grammatically correct, we've got to, you know, I think you so are it, right. It's it a Reese's, Reese's candy, but yeah. it is funny though, because almost everybody calls it Reese's or, you know, Reese's PCs or whatever. <laughs> I'm like, well, that doesn't make but it sense. But it is, <laughs> it's like, you're right because it is, it was the Reese candy company. So it's the last name is Reese. You just got to throw an apostrophe on that. So it's Reese's. You're right. Yeah. yeah but anyways, um, my favorite is probably, uh, I don't eat them very often, but the York peppermint patties. I always love when I get one of those, some, some nice dark chocolate and some, some mint. I'm actually today, I, I haven't really had much to eat today. And so I've got a, um, I've got a bag of skinny pop here that I'm oh, working on. So I didn't even realize until I started looking at it, that that was a Hershey owned company, but I've become in the last couple of months, I've become a pretty big fan of this skinny pop. Skinny pop solid. I've had that in the past. Um, yeah, mine, I, uh, I haven't had much of the candy recently, but when I was a kid, I had the York peppermint patty in my lunch for school every day. One little small one. That, that was my that was my treat every day for like years and years and years. So I got, I think I have to say that one. I, I probably had that the most in my life. It's also worth noting worth noting that they have a it's a fairly seasonal business in the sense that they have elevated uh sales around Halloween on and Easter and Easter. Easter. And then I imagine there's some with Christmas as well, but Halloween and Easter seem to be the two big ones for them. Yep. Especially Halloween. All right. Let's move on to future growth opportunities, Ian. So this is probably going to be an unpopular one. And I almost hate myself for saying it, but I'm going to go ahead and say healthy snacks. 
they've talked about this a little bit um, over the last couple of years and haven't had a whole lot of traction with it. I've, I saw that they've done a few sugar-free versions of some of their products, but just doesn't like if you're eating candy, like you're getting a you're getting a Hershey bar. I don't know that you really want the sugar-free Hershey bar, right? Like <laughs> I don't know. It just it it hasn't caught on for them yet. Um, doesn't seem to really be a meaningful part of the business, but I do think there's some ability to have um, kind of the in-between zone where it's not like super healthy food, um, but it's also not junk food. And so something like skinny pop might be an example of that I may just be making myself feel better, but something that is kind of a salty snack, but it's a little better for you than traditional popcorn. And so I think that there's um, some opportunity for them to do things like that. And I know Ryan's going to get more into some of those, but I think there's, I think there's a space that they could attack there where it's, it's not super healthy, super healthy. You're not eating, you know, grasshoppers or, um, you know, having whatever it is, right. You're, but it's, it's not sweet um, green. It's not sweet green. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's not sweet green, but it's also, it's not Hershey's traditional products. So I think that people are looking for good snacks that taste good but that aren't maybe as bad for them as a lot of the traditional snacks of them. Yeah. Ryan, what, what's wrong with grasshoppers, Ian? Come on now. The, uh, <laughs> yeah. <they're... laughs> no, to, playing off of Ian. Well, first of all, I think Ian's is right. I think the company's kind of going down that route as well. Last year or not even last year, I want six months ago. Now they acquired uh, Dots Pretzels. Um, so it was December 14th, 2021 is when they completed the acquisition and it was for $1.2 billion or uh, they said it was a billion dollars net of expected future tax benefits. Um, and Dots has 55% share of the pretzel category, according to the press release. And as I mentioned earlier, they've been integrating Dots into Hershey's distribution network, which has helped uh, drastically ramp up sales. So 130% 103% year over year sales growth in the dots space or with the dots brand. Um, it has taken some margin out of the business right now. And if you listen to the conference call, they talk a lot about that, that that integration process and trying to combine supply chains has, has taken a little bit of profits out. Um, but all in all, I think this is a replicable model where you acquire or even build it out yourself, a salty snack brand, and then if you're acquiring it, you can use that Hershey distribution network to, to boost sales. Um, I think they've seen a lot of success with Pirates Booty, uh, Skinny Pop, and Dots. I, I would imagine there's room for more acquisitions like that. Yep. It is a smaller part of the business right now, but I believe it's the one that's growing the quickest. Um, and I think these ones will play more potentially internationally, um, which I think we can talk about later, why the chocolate stuff hasn't gone out of North America. Ryan? I have another thing that I read from the conference call that was just kind of funny, but they talked about, I want to make sure it was Hershey, but I, I think a lot of convenience convenience stores is a big market for them. People pick up candy. And so they asked, and this is going to tailor into yours a little bit, Brett, they, they said, has the price of gas affected your convenience store sales? Are people making less convenience store trips? because they're trying to get off the road is there less mobility. And they said, what's happening actually is people are making more trips, not filling up the tank all the way. So they haven't really seen the impact of the convenience store, uh, the, any detriment from the, this rising gas prices. Wow. Well, not to get on that tangent, but that's just a really inefficient way to go about it. You're spending more gas in the long run, but uh, that's not what the show is about. All I mind, it is inflation. 
Um, and that's kind of a weird future growth opportunity. But this is, and you can see why people bid up the stock a bit uh, when inflation started to kick in, because it's a perfect business. Maybe Coca-Cola is the perfect one, but I think this is one of the closest to being, or maybe, you know, cigarettes or something, but this is the closest business to be perfect to operate in a high inflation environment. There's fairly low capital requirements, at least on a maintenance perspective. They have durable brands um, and it's a small purchase price. So it makes it very economical to raise prices without getting complaints for customers. So, I mean, you can't really pinpoint the exact price of a Hershey bar. You know, it's not 10 bucks, but I mean, what is it? A dollar fifty, a dollar seventy-five. They can raise incrementally without people really noticing, and it's not going to tear into their wallet compared to something like gasoline, which everyone focuses on so much. So, I think that's a big future growth opportunity for them if inflation is persistent. And if you're hedging the input costs, so you're keeping the input the the price of your cocoa products flat inflation is pretty accretive to, to yeah. your bottom line. Well, it depends if there's, well, that's a specific inflation on um, inflation on like that Co- one thing. There could be inflation in other things and not cocoa. Yeah. That's just their highest input cost. Yeah. All right. Let's move to highlights and lowlights. Ian. Yeah. I'd say my highlights, there's a lot of things we could say, but the the key thing for me is that they've got well-established supply chains and distribution networks, um, which I think creates a large moat, right? They can, they know where they're getting their stuff and they know where they're selling it. And I think as we were talking about earlier, there's a lot of things you can plug into that and find success. And so I think that provides a lot of, that's, that's the major highlight for me. The low lights I'd say are one just health uncertainty and regulation. I think there's some chances, and we've seen stuff like this in New York or California, or I think in Washington and Oregon, there's been some similar type laws, but laws that like like a sugar tax or right. things of that nature, people seem to be getting more health conscious. And whether that's um, legislative well, that's perception or- that Because all these companies, their revenue is going up. <laughs> Yes. And I, that's, that's the question is I think there's just a little bit of uncertainty. I don't think that these businesses are going to go away. Um, and I think people will continue to, to eat these types of things and drink these types of things. But I, there's just a little bit of uncertainty there that I, I don't know if the shoe ever drops where there's some, uh, some meaningful transition away from these types of foods. Um, and then the other low light is this, just that this tends to be a fairly low growth industry. And so, that doesn't mean it can't be a good investment or anything like that, but it just growth can solve a lot of problems. And this has traditionally not been a super high revenue growth um, business. Yeah. All right, Ryan. Highlights hundred years, hundred plus years of durable growth. Uh, and that plays into the, the Lindy effect, which I want to describe the Lindy effect just so everyone knows. Uh, I just looked up what's the Lindy effect. It says the Lindy effect is the idea that the older something gets or the older something is, the longer uh, it's likely to be around in the future. The I can pretty much guarantee that this business will not cease to exist in 20 years. I, I can feel very confident saying that. Um, I mean, the Hershey's and, Kiss yeah. just unless wrapped there's up. A, unless there's anniversary. an apocalypse. Well, the only thing that could happen is an apocalypse. I think there's worse problems than, than your... Than your stock price of Hershey. Uh, but 
it's it's just extremely durable and they aren't reliant on any one product to succeed uh, because it's such a diverse portfolio the low lights for me and this is kind of a cop out but the size of the confectionery business especially in north america it's hard for them to develop or acquire anything which and that is the the majority of their business that's going to really move the needle especially in that market and they've had some struggles internationally so it's i would have a hard time resting my bull case on that changing anytime soon yeah good points all right my highlights yep incredible durability they have had a good it's not necessarily a roll-up but acquire their acquisitions have been smart and it seems like the recent ones are growing quickly and hopefully they flow through and become more profitable over time they are immune to almost all macroeconomic pressures besides the prices of commodities that they hedge out um, and there's a lots of runway to buy up snack food, stuff like Pirates Booty and Smart Pop. There's tons of those that come out that probably do, you know, like a hundred million in revenue, maybe up to 500 million in revenue if they're larger that are primed to be acquired, even internationally as well. Um, low lights, I don't like that there's minimal international success here with the confectionery products. It's just not as high quality as something like a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi that is just that one product basically that one product that's globally throughout the world and has a higher quality brand. The brand quality seems slightly lower, but still high. Brian? Will you explain why you, you, you asked that on Twitter and you got some good insightful responses. Will you explain why you think, or some people thought they had worse success internationally? Yeah. Let me see. Well, a lot of people said taste like explicit bad word. The, uh, um, so Buffett talked about this cause they own C's candy. So they were studying it. Apparently sweets and chocolates, they vary by region a lot. So they, um, saw that it's more personal preference. And I could see that a lot of the European followers said that Hershey chocolate tastes bad, but I think a lot of Americans would say, well, Hershey chocolate tastes fine. It's not like the best, but it's, it's fine. Um, and apparently that's why, uh, and Coca-Cola was like a totally new product. Chocolate wasn't something that they invented. So it's like a whole new carbonated soda thing. Um, and then also this was from, uh, Lawrence Hansel, who does a lot on CPG stuff and the history of these businesses in after world war II, Hershey. Um, and this might've been a really poor choice because if they didn't, then maybe they could be as big as Coca-Cola is today, which has a much larger market cap. They decided to focus solely on the U.S. market after World War II and let Nestle and Cadbury and Mars go after the international space, which if you look at Hershey's stock price, it's been fine. But it, they had that established brand or not established. They had that new brand penetration um, after the World War II victory. You kind of saw the victorious soldiers were eating the Hershey bars. A lot of, say, you know, Japanese people and European people were like, oh, this is the new American uh, chocolate brand, but then they just kind of pulled out and didn't press the pedal on there. Um, and then, I'll, yeah, so I think that that's kind of why they've had minimal success. Um, and they'd probably want to go through it by acquisition, although it is pretty crowded. And I don't know if some of those chocolate makers would want to sell to Hershey. So, yeah, long winded answer there. Also, a lot of comments that said it was bad. It's not, it's like a unique taste. It's like Coca Cola. Coca Cola tastes frankly, not that good. It's just got that unique taste, both Hershey and Reese's, Reese's, thank you, Ian, uh, and Kit Kat. I think they're big ones. They don't, they have this unique taste, almost like a McDonald's or a Coca-Cola that isn't specifically chocolate. It's that brand's taste. You guys, you guys agree with that? 
Yeah. And I think a lot of people were saying when they were saying, oh, they don't, they think that the Hershey's tastes like whatever the explicit word is they used. The, uh, they're referring particularly to the Hershey's chocolate bar, not just like all their brands. Right. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's limited. Right. That's Reese's is their largest, uh, one. That's the biggest. I think it's the number one in the country. Yeah. All right. Any other loads for me? Family trust would be something to worry about, but not really. It seems like they've been fine. They've been around forever and the stock's done, stock's done good. All right. Bull case. Ian, what do you think? So for me, I think the bull case is that acquisitions and salty snacks bump growth up to 5 to 10% a year for a number of years here. And, mar- and uh, margins improve by a few basis points every year. You get your dividend plus a slightly above market return um, with a fairly stable company. I think that's that's kind of the bull case here for me. All right, Ryan, what do you think? I, I think, well, you you definitely get stability in the North American confectionery business. If we are in a super inflationary environment, that is also a buoy for them. Um, the other part of my bull case would be that there's salty snacks and international categories see bigger growth and that there's more room for these acquisitions like dots. And they're not only able to acquire these companies and just integrate them into the family, but they are, uh, they're able to bolster sales because they have more efficient supply chains and and better reach. Um, That I think in total could give them an above market return. Um, And you're taking maybe a little less risk with that because this is such a durable business, but there's obviously a ceiling to growth here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in similar boat. You have the durability. So you have that in there. You slowly raise prices. You buy out companies maybe once every year. It seems like their pace has been and they're fairly small ones. Um, And then add them into your network. You add on the dividend yield. You add in some buybacks that are tiny, but still, you know, got to count that in. And maybe you get 10% plus annualized returns from here if you don't get big multiple compression. Uh, but I think multiple compression might lead us into the bear case. Uh, Ian, what, what could go wrong for an investment in Hershey? Yeah, I think what goes wrong here is you, you still get your dividend, but the growth is minuscule or non-existent and your money sits for years without meaningful returns, particularly because of the multiple that you're saying. It's trading at above average multiple right now compared to what it has been traditionally. Um, and so you kind of get get a little bit of multiple compression over the years and you kind of try and make buy with your dividend. Like, I don't think this is the type of stock that's going to zero, you know, who knows, but <laughs> I don't think you lose 90% of your capital in Hershey, but, um, but I think the the bigger risk is that you just don't get a whole lot of growth and maybe, you know, you could get some drawdowns because of the multiple you're buying it at right now. Yeah. Ryan. Yeah. Multiple compression is probably the big one. Um, the, the other, and not necessarily even a bear case, but, just that there's other place other places that are better to have your capital. Um, it, for me, it's hard to see revenue growth or free cash flow per share growth exceeding ten percent by too much. Like, really, I just really, not even free cash flow because they have seen strong op- operating leverage. Yeah, I mean it's been steady, but like they, they've steadily expanded margins. But you're talking about what, 15%? That seems pretty optimistic. No, I said 10%. Yeah, that, that was your note. I'm saying any, anything drastically exceeding 10%. The, I think 10% could be achievable, but it's hard for me to imagine that it's any 
higher than that. And I do think the multiple will come down. So you probably, I don't know. I think there's, there's a high floor and a low ceiling is, is what it feels like. So maybe you get sub market performance. I don't see you losing money over a 10 year period, but um, the opportunity costs, there might be better places elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, mine is multiple compression. That seems to be the biggest risk for me. Um, but it's really hard to find anything else. Again, hard to imagine losing money over a decade. But I think the biggest thing is how much are you gaining compared to something else? All right, let's wrap things up more or less interested. Ian, final thoughts. I'm a little bit less interested. I think it's, like you said, it's a quality business. I think there are some headwinds it'll be facing over the next 10 years in terms of health and competition, um, maybe more direct to consumer brands, which arguably benefits them too. But I, you know, I think that there's just a few headwinds. Um, and at the multiple you're paying today, uh, you know, traditionally, like when you look at their free cash flow multiples, it's it's at the high end, right? It's been higher for short periods of time, but not much. And this is the type of business that if you could get it at a market multiple or below market multiple, I think it gets a lot more interesting because you get high quality business and um, and at a great price. Uh, given where it is today, you have to expect that they're going to execute well over the next couple of years to, to drive meaningful returns, I think. And um, I think there's some reason to believe that, but it's just not not a bet that I'm super interested in making. All right, Ryan. Yeah, this isn't my. I, I don't typically uh, look for companies that I think, or I typically don't typically buy companies where I think growth will be pretty low. And I definitely that's not where I typically dabble, but I definitely don't do it when it trades at a valuation premium to its historicals, something that's been around this long, you probably want to be buying it where it's at a discount to its typical historical average, or at least within line, in line with market average. Hard for me to, like I said, like if I were looking at this a year, I wish we visited this a year ago, because I would have been probably when the opportunity cost was worse. And I didn't think there was as much opportunities around the, that would have been more exciting to me than now. Yeah, let me look at free cash flow in the last year. EV to free cash flow. Right now we're about 30, but in July 20, oh, let me look at the last three year chart. Yeah, it was, well, the only time it got below 20 was in the uh, March 2020 drawdown for a slight bit there. But yeah, it was closer to 24, I guess, for most of the year, most of the last three years. Um, so we'll see. All right, my final thoughts. I'm interested, more interested for sure. I mean, I had it on my list of top five businesses of all time. So I think I, I feel like I have to. This feels like one where if for some reason, and it's happened, it's got to have had to have happened throughout its history. If it goes into a low, low multiple for whatever reason, GFC type deal, um, great financial crisis, I think, let me look at their max one here. Nah, Does it's not hard to feel see like them. a Buffett business? I know. I, I'm surprised they don't own it. I think it's because of the ownership of the family can't can't take that outsized position. They probably won't, weren't able to acquire it. I'm surprised they never took a stake. It was only they could have taken a stake like with Coca-Cola um, back in the 90s, but maybe they didn't know. They, uh, who knows what they were thinking back then? But yeah, I'm way more interested. Not way more interested. Definitely more interested, but yeah, not at this price. This seems like one where if it gets down to a 
free cash flow multiple below 15, it would be very, very hard to lose money, even if you don't grow because you have the dividend. Hopefully they're buying back stock. Um, but if you're looking for low risk stuff outside of an index, this feels like a perfect one to you, per- perfect one to check out as long as you don't, you know, make sure to ch- make sure that multiple is not too crazy. All right. We have stock for next week and it is my turn. Um, I guess, Ian, you're not going to be here to do this one, but we're going to be going to be doing Farfetch Limited. It's down like 90% since we covered it, uh, I believe, over a year ago. So I want to do a revisited there. I don't know what happened, but the stock just totally collapsed. Um, so we'll see. We'll investigate why. Fashion platform or something. I can't even remember what it is. It's some sort of luxury fashion platform. So, yeah. All right. Before we go, I, I want to give a, uh, if you listen to our last, you will have listened to the power hour. Probably if you listen to those, uh, I want to give a thanks to Ian because he's been with us now for almost two years. Am I, am I getting that yep. timing right? That is correct. Almost yeah, two so. years. The show has grown, uh, by a lot since he, yeah. since he joined. Um, and so if you have appreciated his contributions and you're a listener, feel free to give him a thanks on, on Twitter or wherever you can find him because uh, he's, he's been helpful to us. Yep. And we're still going to be doing the same show, but sometimes uh, we may try to find someone else to join in, but we, it might just be me and Ryan, Ryan and I, excuse me. Uh, but yeah, thank you Ian for joining us uh, and doing the shows. All right. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. Remember we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on this show is not formal advice or recommendation. Ryan and I are general partners at Arch Capital. Arch Capital clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. 